live from Beit Shemesh and broadcasted around the world. You are listening to the From Entrepreneur Podcast with your host, Nahum Kligman. Interviews and advice from Jewish entrepreneurs from around the world. Listen, learn, be Masliach. Welcome to episode 47 of the From Entrepreneur I have an incredible guest today, super excited, an incredible story. I know you're going to find it inspirational. I have with me Zev Zalman Ludwig, a.k.a. Zizi Ludwig. Uh, Zizi is a Hasidic violin maker. Um, His story is inspiring. I can't wait for you to hear it. Zizi, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a big blessing to be with you. So it's incredible. First of all... um, you know, there was this, this article, I'm going to link to it uh, in the episode, to, in the Washington Post, they, they uh, did about you. And I want to dig into, you know, a lot about your, your, your history. Um, obviously, you have, uh, well, I shouldn't say obviously, obviously, because I read the article that you have history with music. But uh, first, why don't you tell us just basically a little bit about your business, about Ludwig's House of Violin, which is in uh, Silver Spring, Maryland. And uh, then we'll go a little bit into your background and your story, and then we'll get more into the business aspects of uh, building violins. Sure, fantastic. So I am uh, a luthier. A lot of people don't know what that term means. It's someone who builds string instruments. Mm-hmm. Not to be not to be confused with Lutheran. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, huh? I thought you were Jewish. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, I'm a luthier, and I'm the owner of uh, Ludwig's House of Violin here in Silver Spring. It's I cater to a lot of repair and restoration of violin, viola, and cello, and uh, I've really now been getting into making violins as well. And my ultimate goal is to be able to do the making on a more full-time level and uh, spread the love, you know, with music and share a nice kosher instrument. Amazing, amazing. I, you know, I wonder, I guess it's true. I, I, I had uh, Eitan Katz on my podcast recently, and we talked a little bit about how the power of music, the Kayach music, and how the machshavas that go into music has uh, an effect on your neshama. I wonder if the machshavas you have when building the instruments, you know, I wonder if that has an effect as well. Have you, have you ever come across something like that? Um, well, this is what a lot of people tell me. Um, you know, I am a follower of Breslov, so I study Rebbe Nachman uh, pretty much daily. And uh, the Rebbe talks about how when you do listen to music from a kosher musician, it takes you to heights that we can't even fathom. Right. And, the, and, the, and the same is in the, in the opposite. When we listen to music from a source that's maybe not so pure, um, he calls it the, the evil singer. It's somebody who plays music for their own uh, prestige, you know, their their own benefit, instead of uh, doing it to uplift others to get closer to Hashem, then that's bad news. Now, you take somebody, and you know, every day I do tshuva, every day I strive to be worthy of being, um, you know, having pure thoughts and, and pure deeds. And so if I can really optimize that, and now I'm putting that into my, my labor, so that if I have really holy thoughts and now I'm doing something um, that's going to hopefully um, bring those thoughts into deed. And so hopefully my creations are going to be um, with pure intent. 
Right. And so I think that that can only help, you know. Um, I'm looking forward to having some of my instruments get into the hands of others who who are following a, a, a holy path and see if they feel a difference between another instrument they've gotten, you know, from someone else. Amazing. Without yeah, a source that, that's not. Yeah, definitely would be interesting. I mean, are there any other that you know of from violin makers or, or string uh, instrument makers? Not that I know of personally. Because I, no. I would imagine it's not like, you know, you know, even, the, I guess, like uh, building a wall. I mean, it's like, you know, <laughs> you know building a violin or any type of musical instrument, I guess, is it's it's more of an art than a than a science, I would assume. It's actually it's so much of both. It for sure it's an art form, mm-hmm. but if you take you know if you take the anatomy of a violin or another instrument, you know viola, cello, guitar. I mean, it's unbelievable the the mathematics that are involved. Oh, you know, was, um, I mean, it was a. a Ruach HaKodesh on, uh, on uh, Andrea Amadi's part. Uh, he, he was not Jewish, but uh, you know, Hashem, Hashem gives the, the sparks down sure. you know, to, to uh, all of his children. Sure. And um, you know, in the 1500s, when Amadi created the violin, um, the design of it has been so perfect that throughout all these years, nothing has been changed really. I mean, the whole, it's, it was just, there was no flaws in the design at all. And so everything, yeah, and everything happens, you know, every angle, every arch, every thickness, and, and throughout the instrument, there's many different thicknesses of the wood because of the different archings. And that all adds to the amplification of sound, the tonal quality. It's, it's just mind boggling. When you start getting into it, it's, it just really uh, it blows my mind, really. Hmm. And and I is I guess all violins, and I'll say violins. I mean all the string instruments, but it's just easier to talk about violins that they're all handmade, or you could, or they are commercially made at in some places. I mean, you do have. Um, there are people who are using these CNC machines that can cut out um, like the top and the bottom, and now even though some who are using it to cut out the necks and the scrolls, um, and then they finish it off by hand. And then I believe there are some factories that are mass-producing instruments, you know, in places like China. Sure. That um, I'm not sure. It's more of an assembly line situation. Mm-hmm. And they pay these guys so, so little money that you can – you know, have a finished instrument. It's not a high quality instrument, but you can have a finished instrument that you could purchase on eBay for like a hundred dollars. You know, it's insane. Right, uh, right. And I have a feeling, and I've I've seen a lot of these student um, entry level instruments, and they are. It looks almost like maybe a machine has cut out the parts, <laughs> and they're maybe glued together. I've never witnessed it. Um, never seen an operation like that in person or on video so i'm not sure but um thank god um what i'm doing is completely by hand and i'm doing it the same way that it has been done for hundreds of years wow so how long does it take usually to to make a violin or to make a string instrument in a perfect world where you're not um running into certain situations i would say maybe 250 to 300 hours oh wow um, you could you could produce a violin. 
Wow. Now, yeah, so it's um, it's definitely a long process, and this is when if you're you know you're working full time, so maybe you can have an instrument in uh, you know three weeks time, a month, something wow. like that. Um, I know people who can work on kind of two instruments at the same time. Mm-hmm. So as one instrument is maybe, you know, being glued up certain parts and they're working on the other one, mm-hmm. you know, to do the different um, carvings and things. So you could kind of do like two at once, you know. Right. But each one, I guess, has its your own signature, its own special. Like, I guess no two violins come out exactly the same. That's correct. That's correct. They all have almost like a snowflake. They all have just a little bit of its own individuality, you know, its own identity and 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 that's proof and when you finish the instrument and you're playing it for the first time and now tonal quality also has to do with a lot and how it's set up but each instrument has it's such a unique voice hmm. so i think that's the that's the beauty of it um and that's why you have people who come over and they'll try you know a half dozen instruments or so and each one just sounds a little different and and one might be more you know Bass heavy, more bottom endy, one more um, cutting through on the on the trebly side, and and everyone has what they're looking for as far as their own performance and what they're trying to achieve. So an instrument that I might think this is perfect, and then they say, well, I'm looking for something a little more like this, you know. And so right. you can't tell anybody. It's so specific, you know. I can't tell you um, that chocolate chip ice cream is the best you know if you like vanilla you know <laughs> right i mean so it's it, the the ear is so individualized so what i hear is maybe what's different than what you hear you Interesting. know right so right. um it's it's very specialized which and, is exciting you know right sure and but and how much do uh, violins usually go for handmade uh violins well if you're a a beginning maker which is what i consider myself Mm-hmm. Um, an instrument might start out in the, I'd say eight thousand range. Wow. Uh, my my instruments start out at thirteen thousand. Wow! And, and once you you know get um, you know ten, twenty, thirty instruments on your belt, then your prices can go up accordingly. Especially you know it depends also on the quality of the instrument. Sure. Um, and as your reputation develops, now my mentor his um, instruments. Sell for uh, thirty five thousand. Wow! And they're worth every penny. I mean, he's that's. Who's your mentor? My mentor is Howard Needham. He's one of the top violin makers in the country, and uh, Shem has blessed me so much for having him taking taking me under his wing, and uh, it's just been amazing. So amazing. And he's located. You're so you're in Silver Spring. He's in. Silver, I'm in Silver Spring. He's also in the area. Yeah, he's about 15 minutes away. Wow. Uh, he used to. Yeah, he used to. Unbelievable. He used to work out of Annapolis, Maryland. And um, when I started my training, it was uh, a little over 10 years ago. And I had gone to him because of his reputation, and I, you know, asked him that I wanted to get into the building aspect. At that time, he was pretty busy. And and I was a, uh, a newbie as far as um, being a luthier, and he was he showed me a couple things that was way over my head, and I just said, "Nah, this is too hard." <laughs> right. And I kind of put that on hold. But then now, uh, you know, ten years later, um, I went to him again, approached him, and this time he said, "Yeah, I'll definitely take you on." And um, it's just been amazing um, the things that that he's showed me, and and he's really um, step by step. 
you know, walking me along the process. And it's just, I can't ask for anything more than that. Wow, fantastic. All right, so obviously Ashkocha Pratis plays a lot in your life. And so let's go a little bit into your background, where you're from, how, you know, what's your story? I, you know, you weren't always Breslov, so how did that come about? And uh, let's take it from there. Well, I was born in D.C., and uh, I call myself the Freedom Baby because uh, Martin Luther King Jr. gave his speech, I Have a Dream. That was August 28th, 1963. Mm-hmm. How do I know that? Because I was born a few hours later in <laughs> D.C. on August 29th, 1963. <laughs> so when he had a dream, my mom was uh, in the hospital having a dream that the labor pains would uh, cease and the baby would come out, you know? Wow, wow. So, uh, Yes, I'm the, I call myself the freedom baby. <laughs> so I was born in D.C. And then, uh, you know, after I got out of the hospital two days old, uh, I, I, uh, my family resides in Silver Spring. And so uh, I'm really a homegrown tomato from Silver Spring, Maryland. And um, so our, our, our family, we, I actually live now um, a half mile from my childhood home. So oh, I'm, wow. I, I kind of call it the Bermuda Triangle because I've gone other places i've moved other places and and i'm back here um but we grew up in a conservative house mm-hmm. it was a very traditional house my my mom is from grudna poland mm-hmm. and she uh, a miracle story how how she got here escaped the holocaust uh two weeks before the the nazis came into grudna and wiped out the whole town her and her parents uh, made it out it was a wow. miracle wow and um, and my father, Olive Shalom, he was from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. And so we grew up in a house where my parents spoke Yiddish with each other. <laughs> and my father, he had such a love of Jewish music. And I remember, you know, we are very traditional. Like I said, we, we would have Friday night dinners. And, you know, my father lit up when he was singing Jewish songs. And, and so I grew up with a love of Jewish music. Um, even though per se we weren't so like observant, we did have um, Friday night Shabbos dinner, and and um, I also had the privilege um, and blessing to to grow up with a grandmother who had such a love of Yiddishkeit and from the old country, from from Poland, Beautiful. and she was a big influence on me. And so I think that really planted seeds deep inside of me for what later would be watered and become fruit. So years later, I mean, I grew up, um, unfortunately, it was uh, it was basically a house of sorrow. We lost my, my oldest sister, Elvisham, passed away when she was 17. And I was oh, only, wow. almost, I, was, I was almost two. I was a baby. Mm. And so the family kind of, instead of coming closer, the sorrow just pulled everybody apart. You know, I can't imagine as a parent myself, I can't imagine what my my folks no, um, went through, and so um, everybody went their own way. Um, mm-hmm. My oldest brother, who at that time was Larry, his English name, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners know him. Uh, he's Laser Brody. Uh, so, Laser Brody. I didn't want. Brody. I didn't want to give that away. I wanted to see if people could figure it out from your voice and your tone. Right. Right. Yeah. Our voices <laughs> are very similar. It, it, it's funny, and not to not to transgress, but uh, I was in Uman a couple years ago, and someone came up to me and said, "Excuse me, has anyone ever told you you sound like Rabbi Laser Brody?" <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, yeah, our mom. <laughs> <laughs> that's 
That's great. That's so they're great. like, well, why is, why is your name Ludwig and his Brody? Well, because our mom's maiden name is Brody. And he wanted when he became a Rove in the 80s, he wanted to kind of continue the Brody legacy that was lost in the Holocaust. You know, he wanted to continue the Brody name. Right. And so he took on Brody as his last name. But we do have the same mother and father. And if you see pictures of uh, us, um, I am I am 15 years younger, but I'm kind of like the mini me. I'm like, you know, <laughs> I, um, I, I call myself the stunt double because a lot of times <laughs> um, people will come up to me. Um, thinking that I'm him, even That's though I, I, I'm Actually, not the, quite the, as my type, beard is not quite as white. But yeah, and, say, and the type of health that uh, you know Leonardo Brody's in, yeah, you know, I don't know if he needs a stunt double. He's like the type to do his own stunt doubles. But uh, he's on table right saying, now. It's, it's I told insane. him the other day. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just saying it's insane how how fit you know Baruch Hashem uh, the Rav is. I told him the other day he's making the rest of us look bad. You know? <laughs> I was watching a video of him working out, you know, and I'm I don't know what I'm doing. I'm like. Yeah, I, I watched for about a minute and then I turned it off. I said, you know, I think I'll stick to to the Rebbe's Torah because you know, watching the workout videos is just you know, forget it. You know, Baruch Hashem. I, 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 so, I so yeah, what uh, I was what I was saying is that um, so Laser he ended up moving to Israel um, at a young age. I, I know that our our other brother, um, my brother Sid, who he resides in Maui, Hawaii. He was uh, he was drafted to Vietnam. Oh, wow. And um, this was back, I think, maybe 68, something like that. I'm not sure the date. Mm-hmm. But uh, Laser said, wow, you know, our brother's drafted to Vietnam. He says, if I'm, if I'm going to be drafted, if i got to fight, I'm, go- I'm going to Israel. We grew up in a very Zionistic family, so we had a lot of love of Israel. And that's what he did. He moved over to Israel, and uh, he was, you know, in the military over there. He, he sure. enlisted in military. He was, you know, he was on, in special forces. He was in a, you know, a couple wars over there, and... Uh, I'm sure you know his story. You know, yeah, they used to course. call him Rabbi Rambo. Rabbi Rambo, and yeah. yeah. I brought Hashem. I, I've just close to have a bit of a Kesher with uh, your brother. You know, right. he's had a tremendous, tremendous impact on my family and I. We even named one of our daughters Imuna. Ah, that's Based on his teachings. And I can't tell you how many times that um, through several Nisoyans we've had that uh, your brother's come to, you know, help us out and just. You know, just an incredibly special person, and so I'm sure he's part of your story also. How you uh, got into Breslov, but so let's yeah. so let's go back to that. So your so your so your bro, your brother Rev Laser went to Eretz Yisrael. You had another brother Eretz went Israel. into Vietnam, and you're you're young yeah. at this point. Yeah, I was very young at this point, um, and I grew up, you know, in a house that um, there was a lot of music in our house. My uh, my brother Sid's a musician. And when he when he got out of Vietnam, he moved back to the States, and he was in rock bands. And I used to go with him to his band practices and some of his gigs. And he was playing um, bass and guitar. And I used to go over his house, and he had like the band used to practice there also. And I he used to let me like mess around with the instruments. And I used to sit behind the drums. And I love the drums, but unfortunately, my parents wouldn't let me have a drum kit because. <laughs> It would just, you know, be like outrageously loud. Right. <laughs> so um, I remember, um, you know, playing his bass guitar, and that also kind of resonated with me. But in elementary school, the instruments that they offer were violin, cello, you had woodwinds, brass. And, and um, as a kid, I had asthma pretty bad. So, so any kind of instrument like a woodwind, brass, you know, anything that I had to 
you know, blow into was like out of the picture. Sure. So um, I decided that I would take violin lessons. And that lasted for about three years. Oh, wow. Um, and yeah, I had a couple. I remember like um, playing a couple of events in elementary school. Um, kind of got my, my taste for what it was like to perform on stage, you know, in front of people mm-hmm. at a young age. Maybe I was maybe eight years old, nine years old. Wow. Um, but I remember the kids in my neighborhood a couple of them in particular were kind of bullies and it wasn't cool for this little guy. I was always smaller than other people. The little guy carrying his violin right. um, was, you know, asking for <laughs> for attention, you know. And um, so they used to chase me home, uh-huh. um, me carrying his violin. And I remember one time they, they, they got a hold of me and, um, you know, I threw me in a puddle or something. I don't really remember exactly what. Um, but at that point I decided that it wasn't worth it, and I I dropped the violin. Unfortunately, well, that's a shame. That's really it is a shame. shame. But this is you know you talk about hashkacha protis. It's it's all full circle now, and I'll get to it very shortly. I'm, I'll try to make this a quick story. So after that, I go to my brother, the musician, and say, "All right, I want you to teach me guitar because guitar is cool, right? You know? and, yeah. and back in those days, I remember <laughs> listening to the radio, and you had guys like Peter Frampton, and and all these guys were just you know great guitar players, and so that's what I wanted to do. So um, he started. Well, before you start learning any songs, you got to learn scales. You got to learn the you know theory, the, the the names of the notes, and and all that stuff was just boring for me, and and I lost interest and gave that up. <laughs> it's so interesting because so yeah. your brother was in, was playing rock and roll yeah. with his boys with his buddies. It didn't seem like you don't think of them as taking a type to actually learn music theory or to learn how to write notes and stuff. Right, but he did. He did. He was, you know, he he went to lessons for a long time. And um, but as a teenager, now I I met up with a couple guys, and one was a drummer and one was a guitar player, and they needed a bass player. And I thought, wow, this is a great way to like get popular. Maybe I'll just go get a bass <laughs> and play rock music, you know, and it'll get me out of the house. Right. Um, legitimately, you know, I could say to my folks, hey, I got you know, I got band practice or something, so that. Uh, gives me an out you know i was kind of like a rebellious kid mm-hmm. and so i started playing bass and then um i started getting into bands and and that went on all the way through my 20s into my 30s i was playing this heavy metal music and hard rock music which is f- for sure the farthest thing away from kadusha <laughs> you know exact opposite and, i guess and i was living that whole lifestyle um that's you know I, I don't even want to really go into it too much but everything that a rock star tries to do I was trying to emulate that mm-hmm. and I remember um, now what what it's funny because in 1986 I went to this concert and there was these filmmakers there who were doing a documentary on on basically concert goers and rock music and mm-hmm. so they they came up to me and they said to me. We're with the band. Um, do you have something to say to the band? This is what they said to me. Right. So I started going on this, I don't know, drunken rant that I, you know, and um, and that became, that that en- uh, ended up being in the movie. Oh, wow. Uh, the movie was Heavy Metal Parking Lot. It was the name of the movie. And oh, I've, I've seen that a dozen one of times. The, what's that? I've seen that a dozen times. Okay. So no, just, I became one of the poster children that. for that movie. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That, I'm sorry. What'd you say? No, I was gonna say I, I'm just kidding. I never, I never heard of it even. So uh, okay. <laughs> um, but it became a cult classic movie. Uh huh. 
and um, it won like film festivals, and, oh, wow. and it became a staple on like uh, the rock band Nirvana. It became a staple on their tour bus, and and it just oh, throughout the years it gained this huge momentum and following. And then, and some of the people in the movie became like this um, uh, kind of sensation, and and now I became the poster child for this movie, so that my face was on these posters, on telephone oh poles throughout serious? like Los Angeles. Um, oh, that's my crazy! Face became a mural in Nashville, Tennessee, on a big wall. I mean, it was just oh my crazy. gosh, that's crazy. Yeah. So good thing this is before um, social media. It was before, <laughs> yeah. Um, but and then I used to, I became friendly with the filmmaker throughout the years. I'm like, look, I've never gotten penny one from this. You know, I think it's a t- time we started getting some money. You know, right. sure. Um, and it was on, you know, on MTV and VH1, and wow. I mean, all the place. And I would have friends call me, hey, I just saw you again on TV, and <laughs> you no, know, and I just saw you again on a poster or a billboard. I mean, it's crazy. The, the publicity that we got from this thing. Did you end up getting money from it? I never got any money, but the amazing thing is, um, I'll, I'll fast forward to now. Now is the 30th anniversary of the movie. Yeah. And so all these places have been reaching out. Um, I know University of Maryland has a whole display uh, that they've dedicated, like a hall to it, and they're doing it. They're running it for a year. Oh, on wow. the movie and um, the people in the movie, and I've had people reach out to me, like the Washington Post um, and the DCS, which is another uh, it's an internet newspaper, um, and some other guys have done interviews with me. Like what happened to you know? Right. Uh, so I guess I guess nobody expected what did happen to you to happen to you, right? And so that's a fantastic part because you know. You know, we we say that if you can take an Avera, yeah. right, and you really do chuva on that Avera, yeah, that that Avera becomes a mitzvah. Yes, right. So now I've had Hashem has blessed me with the opportunity that because I was that guy then, you know, and and I was you know breaking Shabbos and partying hard with the people and rock bands and whatever schmutz that I was involved in. Right now. Here I am, a Hasidish guy, and I'm able to give over my story about what it's like to keep Shabbos and what it's like to be abreast of a Hasid. And and even the Washington Post picked up on that stuff, as you saw in the article. You know, so So now I'm like, Like, how did how did you go from rock star and like the face of you know the '60s or the '70s, whatever it was, you know, seeing your face everywhere? And how how did you how did you get into like what was missing? How did that whole story happen? Yeah, so um, you're close. It was 70s and 80s, basically. Um, okay. So what happened was in in the 90s, um, so my oldest nephew, Laser's oldest son, was getting married. Mm-hmm. It, this was in 99, actually. Mm-hmm. And he said, hey, you're coming to the wedding. <laughs> and I knew that. You know, I didn't want to put my brother in a situation that, you know, he's got all his chaver there, the whole community, and here comes this freaky guy with, you know, five earrings and long hair. Right. And I didn't want to, like, you know, kind of make it hard for him. Sure. But they insisted, you know, my my nephew insisted, hey, you've got to come to my wedding. So um, I promised my brother I'd be on my best behavior. 
And, um, you know, I'd tie my hair back, you know, and take the earrings out for the, for the chasna, you know. Right. So I went to the, I went over there for the wedding. And the night before the wedding, the wedding was on Lagba Omer. The, mm-hmm. we, the night before, my brother, nephew, and myself, they t- we took a road trip. And they took me to Tzfat. Wow. And they took me to the Aris Mikvah because my nephew wanted to go to the Mikvah before his wedding. Wow. So I didn't know what a Mikvah was. Wow. So I followed my nephew into this freezing cold body of water. <laughs> um, and I remember it like took my breath away. Right. And, I, and then I see my brother motioning to me, like, go back down. And I'm like, I'd be kidding me, you know. And I, <laughs> so I, I dunk again, and I and I came out, and I asked him first thing, why did you make me go back down? He says, part of your pinky was sticking out of the water. Right? <laughs> but afterwards, they said, oh man, you're in trouble now. What do you mean I'm in trouble now? Well, uh, you know, it says whoever comes into this mikvah is gonna gonna do tshuva, gonna be a tshuva. And I was really upset. Like, <laughs> I don't want to be a tshuva. <laughs> Yeah, I told that before I went in the water, you know. And um, from there, they took me to Maron. It took me to Rabbi Shimon. Wow! And I dove in by Rabbi Shimon, and um, it was a very amazing experience. I remember sitting outside of uh, Rabbi, Shion, Rabbi uh, Shimon's kever, and I I looked up at the hill. It was all these people camping out, and these campfires. It was you know the night before Lag Bomer. Sure. It was, and it really made an impression on me. Well, the wedding was fantastic, and the uh, Sheva Brachas, so all the, uh, it was maybe 20 breasts of a Hasidim, and other Hasidim, they were at my brother's uh, house, and, and I remember them pounding on the table, singing Zmiris, and, and it was such a camaraderie, and so the energy that was going on was amazing. I remember looking at my father, and he just had the biggest smile on his face. He Aww. was... You know, just listening to the Jewish music and just and just the simcha that was going on, and like I said, the high energy. So that really resonated with me. But I came back to the states again, you know, not religious at all, and and saying, "Wow, I'm going to be the only one who breaks this whole tradition uh, <laughs> of people going into the mikvah doing tshuva." Because here I'm still doing my thing, you know. Right. right. Uh, well, uh, a few months later, um, I lost my father. And that's when I took stock in what's going on with me. You know, if if I don't change my ways, then maybe I'm not going to be in this world too much longer. This is what I was thinking. Wow. And um, so it was, you know, thought leads to deed. So that was that was the thought, okay? I didn't change anything as of yet, but then shortly afterwards, um, I met a young lady uh, that I'd known as a uh, as a teen, and we started dating and growing in Yiddishkeit as we were dating. Hmm. Um, and I started following her path. Um, she was learning more, so I figured, you know, if she's learning how to be kosher, I shouldn't be eating McDonald's, you know. And I, so <laughs> well, I started. Why was, she start, le- why was she changing? Well, here's the thing: she she met me, and I don't know if because. Um, because I had told her about my background, she was not Jewish, but it turned out she was. And what happened was she, wow, <laughs> uh, yeah, she was interested in Judaism, and and I told her, you know, look, I as much as I'm not religious per se, I it's really important to me to marry a Jewish girl, and so I, you know. And she goes, well, you know, you said that because I'm really interested in Judaism. I'm like, well, that's fine. I'll hook you up with someone to maybe give you some information. But uh, don't be doing this for me. You got to do this for yourself. 
Right. You know, and that's what she did. She hooked up with the rabbi. Uh, she started learning, and when she was learning, you know, she was learning how to be kosher. She was learning to keep Shabbos, and and I was a little put off by it because I didn't want to change my lifestyle. But I figured, out of respect for her growth, I would do that, and that's what I started doing. And we ended up getting married shortly after she converted. But while she was in the process of conversion, her mother told her something. Like I tell you. Your grandmother, maternal grandmother, was Jewish, <laughs> and she was in the Holocaust, oh. and that's why I was raised um, as a goy. And but uh, you're really Jewish, so wow. the rabbi said, you know, there was. A, they said, well, since we don't have documentation on the grandmother, mm-hmm. that you should continue the process. So she did. She had an Orthodox conversion. Okay. Um, and afterwards, we got married, and we lived three and a half years in an Orthodox lifestyle. And um, for whatever reasons, she decided at that time that that was not the right path for her. Oh. And um, we had, thank God, we had two beautiful daughters. Right. And um, and then shortly after we divorced, I remarried. Oh, wow. um, Thank God. And my wife now, we've been in January, Bizarre Hashem, we'll celebrate 11 years being oh, married. Beautiful. Together. beautiful. And she's the one, really, on the wedding night, We, I said to her, Do you mind if I grow out my beard and pay us? And she said, Look, whatever you want to do, you know. <laughs> and so that was really the start of my Hasidisha path. Right. And, and, oh, and then I realized, though, you know, wow. I, I forgot to tell you. I realized in my first marriage that I guess I, I guess that mikvah really worked. <laughs> I was going to say, was there a moment in time you just like open your eyes and be like, yeah, I'm keeping shot, "Oh my gosh!" Kosher, you know, <laughs> but I great. was like many other balchuva. I was I was a neurotic balchuva. I was not comfortable in my own skin. You know, right. um, like Rabbi Rabbi Nachman talks about stringencies. And I was so stringent, you know, that this this plate touched that counter and just, you know, it, it touched the microwave and just craziness, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm making up um, 614 mitzvahs here, you know. It's uh, it's insane, you know. Right. But just but when I got remarried is really when I started to get more comfortable um, with who I was. And then I started, you know, I said to my wife, okay, you're in charge of Kashrus. I, I trust you. I'm staying out of it. You know, I'm. And I really started letting go and <laughs> let go and let God. That's what I was doing, you know. <laughs> um, and then, you know, my brother, he would send me books and he would send me, you know, Rabbi Nachman's wisdom and, and other books that he was writing. And he let me proofread them. And, and so I was, you know, that started my path in Breslov. It was funny. Before I considered myself a Breslover, maybe on six different occasions throughout a period of a year and a half, I had people coming up to me and say, excuse me, are you Breslov? <laughs> and I'm that's so weird. I'm like, that's, no, I'm not. You know, I wasn't wearing a breast of a keeper. I wasn't wearing a nunach keeper, nothing like that. Right. Um, I said, why do you ask me? They said, well, there's something about you. Just your, your, your smile, whatever. I don't know. So wow. this happened, like I said, about six different times. And finally, I, I started talking to Shem. Shem, people are asking me my breast live, and I don't understand what's going on here. You know. <laughs> and then um, it was kind of like a sign, you know, if you want to read into it. And I remember the first time I went to Uman, which was um, I've been now. Wait, six before, times. before we go there, just yeah. a quick question: 
when uh, your brother uh, Revelazer, when he was when he would send uh, you these books to proofread, uh-huh. do you think he was actually asking you to proofread them, or do you think he wanted you know he wanted a nice way to get you to read the material? No, for sure, <laughs> for sure he was. This was especially the one book, The Trail to Tranquility, is uh, really the yeah. main book that he got me to read. He just wanted my opinion as just um, Joe Reader, you know, oh, I see. Um, oh, okay. you know, because I'm not I'm not an English major, you know, by all means. Um, mm-hmm. You know, our sister is uh, much more of a, you know, if it was going to come to editing and, and, and language, she's the one who would do that. But I, I just was giving him my opinion. Did I like the story? Did I think it, you know, did I think it flowed? Did it resonate with me? Just as, a, as an average reader. Oh, I you see. Know? Okay, cool. Um, so no, it, it wasn't, a, it wasn't an, an ulterior book. motive that he was trying <laughs> to get me to, like, absorb Brussels. That uh, was, he's never, ever um, tried to sway me one direction or another. You know, it was really his son, uh, my nephew, Ben Sion, that, that when he um, became a Balchuva, before his wedding, he's the one who gave me a sitter. He gave me a chumash. And he said, look, you know, if you want to open it now, great. If you want to open it a year from now, great. Just I want you to have them, you know. But my, but my brother Laser never really pushed me any direction like that. You know but what? That, that's, if those, those of us that, that know that know Rev Laser that that know him well know that that that's so typical of Rebbe that he probably was the way that he probably helped you was just by davening and talking to Hashem, you know, and and trying to you know let Hashem bring you the right way. I guess he didn't want to push you on it. He doesn't you know push anybody on it. He just leads by example, and you just his energy is just unbelievable. You just want to attach yourself to it. Yeah, it was amazing. And you know, it's uh, he really, after we lost our father, he really became a father figure to me. Hmm. Um, and he really, you know, took the time out of his huge, busy schedule to, to you know, answer questions. I had a lot of them, you I'm know, sure. and, and to guide me um, in a direction that made sense for me, you know, kind of a, a individualized, tailored path, you know, right. because he, know, he knew my where I was coming from, and sure. you, it's you can't you can't just um, help everyone the same way in Kiruv. You know, everyone's got to it's got to relate to them on their level. True, right? And so he was really good about that. And and then I think he you know he saw um, my growth, and I think he told me that you know it's time for you to go to Uman. You know, right? Uh, and so amazing, you know, so many people. Davin to go to Uman and and he'll even have their their ticket in their pocket and then things happen and they don't get to go. You know we believe that that uh, the Rebbe invites us personally to 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 be in the kibbutz. Yes, know? I was invited. Um, I was invited four times. And did you make it? Yeah, I went four times. <laughs> oh, fantastic! Yeah. Okay, great, beautiful. <laughs> uh, so I you know I started going and I remember the first year I went it was just I, I felt like like I was at home I felt with the with the chevra the 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 octut that's there you know between oh, so many yeah. different types of people you got guys with dreadlocks and hippies and and musicians and then you got guys with small keepers guys with Big keep a strime or whatever, and everybody's got the Sotner, same. Lubavitch, yeah. it's it's exactly. incredible, incredible. Yeah, and you're all there for the same reason, and it's that same love of of the Rebbe that that everybody's there. And if we had that kind of achdut here, you know, without judging, okay, this guy's a litvisha, this guy's a you know Hasidish. Right. I mean, it, you know, then Mashiach for sure would become. Oh, I always tell people, I said, you, if unless you've been been to Uman and Rosh Hashanah, you can't judge it 
because it is it, it's it's the the and, and it's exactly what you said the level of achdus and love and non-judgmental and simcha and joy and 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 connection to Hakadosh Baruch Hu and you know it's it, it's it's something that you cannot you you can't experience anywhere else and and as you said if the world if we as Jews were like um, how it is in Uman and Rosh Hashanah. You know, Mashiach would have been here a long time ago. So, uh, you know, I, I completely, I, I, I totally hear where you're coming from, and I 100% agree with it, and it's an unbelievable thing to witness. I, I'll tell you exactly. a quick story. I'll tell you a quick, amazing yeah. story about, about this. I was once sitting with a friend of mine in Uman, who I hadn't seen in like 10 years, and we, we, he just happened to have been, been there, and we decided to play a game that each one of us would randomly point to somebody, and you'd have to just go up to that person and give that person a hug, and the first, <laughs> the first person to get rejected would lose. So we did, we did this for about an hour, just pointing out, okay, you go hug that person, go that. No, we had to stop because we were never rejected from a free hug from somebody. <laughs> That's for sure. True story, true story. Yeah, for sure. I believe it 100%. <laughs> That's there for sure. Yeah, that's love, man. It's and you know you and you meet people there, and you're friends with them for the rest of your life. Yeah. I've got so many close friends who I met there, and and now we just stay in touch, and it's you know it's amazing. Beautiful. Um, okay, so let's get let's friends. get to the house of uh, yeah. of of, of uh, uh, the, Luke, the the Ludwig House of Violin. Okay. How do we get Perfect. started with that? Because uh, this is, I mean, obviously a story we could keep talking about for another hour. Which I is apologize amazing. for going on. Yeah, no, no, you. please don't apologize. It's amazing. It's inspirational to see you know where you've come from and how you got started and you know your background in music, and now you're using it uh, for good and for for uh, you know what, where did the idea of what is Ludwig's House of Violin and what's the idea behind it? You mentioned before about actually building instruments, but this is more than just that. Yeah, 2004. Let's back up real quick. Sure. Um, at the at the uh, end of my first marriage, my my um, wife at the time said to me, "Look, you're not bringing in enough money. You're gonna have to get a better job." So I was really finicky. I'd go from this job to that job. At that time, nothing really was you know striking a, a resonance with me. And I decided that I was going to. What if I did something with music and I can incorporate my woodworking skills? Because in high school, the only thing I really was good at was woodworking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I looked up on you know back then we it was the beginnings of uh, Rabbi Google. And so uh, <laughs> I, I Googled, um, what do you call someone who builds instruments? And it was called a luthier. So I started punching in the word luthier every day. And I saw an ad for um, a banjo maker, and he was looking for someone to help him. And at that time, I was playing bluegrass music. I had switched from electric bass to uh, mandolin and banjo. And I, re- I got into a bluegrass band, and that's a whole nother part of a story that we could go on with but i won't so <laughs> i i hooked up with this guy and he was going to give me the job he, he told me you have the job and then that night he called me back and said sorry my insurance is gonna be too high i can't hire you ah. so i just said okay that's from god and uh <laughs> the next day i'm punching in luthier again and a week later i get a hit there is a violin shop here in maryland that's looking for a luthier and i called them and i talked to the the manager and i said look i'll be honest with you they're looking for someone first of all who's graduated three years of violin making school there's three big schools in the country that people usually go to and i did not go to either one of them i said i don't have experience but I am a musician, been one almost my whole life. I have woodworking skills. I'm really eager 
I said, I'll do anything. I'll clean toilets. I'll wash windows. I just right. want to get my foot in the door, you know. Right. And after a couple of interviews um, with different people there, finally the boss interviews me. And um, this is Dalton Potter from the Potter Violin Company. He's been an amazing uh, uh, person in my life. He said to me, um, I was not going to, I need somebody experienced, but your eagerness, and I see that you're passionate about this, I'm going to give you an opportunity. He brings me in as uh, working in the shipping department and cleaning rental instruments, like wiping them down, putting new strings on. Wow. Um, And after about six weeks, he came down and said, look, pack your stuff. And I said, oh, man, he's firing me. I can't believe this. He said, no, the um, the repair guy is moving back to Italy. I'm bringing you upstairs. I'm going to start formal training. Oh, and wow. And so he started training me, trained me for almost four years, him and a couple other guys in the shop that were fantastic. And that's Amazing. how I got my start. Um, I went from there to a double bass shop, and I worked there for two years, honing my skills on working on double basses. And then I went back to another violin shop for two years, and then through Shkocha Protis, somebody brought me an instrument. I was taking a little hiatus on working on instruments, and, and someone brought me an instrument. I repaired it for them, did a great job. I got another instrument from someone else, and it was like Hashem was giving me these opportunities. And then my, 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 my trainer, my first boss, Dalton, called me and said, there's a big shop in Virginia. They need a repair guy. Um, but you got to have your own shop to work on the instruments. You know, you go there, you pick up instruments, bring them home, repair them, take them back. Mm-hmm. And that's how it started. So that's how Ludwig's House of Violin started. Oh, that's um, great. I got the contract with this big music company in Virginia. And so once a week I would go there. I still do. I go there once a week. I pick up a car full of violin, viola, cello that are busted up. I bring them home. And so I got my business license and I started – um, developing on sales as well. Um, I have a, another great friend who is has a violin shop here in Bethesda, Bill Weaver. He's given me a lot of great opportunities as far as helping me um, with the sales aspect. And he hooks me up with um, – he has a lot of like Romanian and different other European makers who sell instruments directly to him. Mm-hmm. And he will – give me a good deal on some of these instruments. Um, They're unfinished, so I bring them home and I finish them off, meaning I do the setup work. I'll I'll cut the bridge and do the fingerboard and add the hardware, and that usually takes me about five hours or so to set up one of these instruments, and then I can sell them for a pretty inexpensive price because I don't have the middleman and I don't have the big overhead of staff. Right. So I can sell these really gorgeous European instruments um i would say uh intermediate level for a student and a beginner level for a professional and i could sell these romanian violins starting at around 1300 dollars, which is really a cheap price for these wow and so and i sell bows and all the accessories cases and strings and all the stuff that you need for uh for the string community fantastic and so that's really how Ludwig's House of Violin got its start. I really, I'd say 95% of my business is repair and restoration. Mm-hmm. And now my my first my first mentor, Dalton, said to me, look, now if you want to take your repair to the next level, you got to start building from scratch. And that's when I looked into 
Howard Needham, and uh, he gave me the opportunity. And so now I've been working with him for the last maybe um, six months or so, and I go over there once or twice a week, and it's just been unbelievable. It's it's taken my my uh, skills of repair and restoration, take them to the next level, and now usually late at night is when I work on my own instruments building. And it's uh, it's, it's been yeah it's 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 such a blessing to be able. I mean my. My commute is about ten seconds to go down the steps <laughs> sure. to my workshop. You know, no, um, it's and great. I mean, and then to be just involved with something that you're so passionate about and that you love and you can take pride in, it's just, uh, it's just amazing. It's all from a sham. When I see back, you know, from from the time that I, you know, took the violin lessons at eight years old to the time where, you know, I was desperate to bring in more money just to. Um, save a failing marriage, you know, Hashem puts these different things in our path that we don't even see, you know, these puzzle pieces, you know, we see this black puzzle piece, right. and we say, what is this, you know, but only when you put that black puzzle piece, and it finishes off this beautiful picture of a waterfall, then you realize what that black puzzle piece was for, you know, Amazing. and that's exactly what's going on, And I and how many people get to see the fruits of their labor, you know, a lot of people, we, you know, we plant the seeds and water the tree, but do we get to see the fruit? I'm so blessed that I'm now being able to not only get to see the fruit, but I'm getting to taste the fruit. It's <laughs> unbelievable. It's really miracles. And, and I just, I'm so blessed with how everything is, is turning out. It just seems like it's just gaining more and more momentum. It's fantastic. Beautiful, beautiful. I, I love this story. It's it's truly inspirational. I love that you're passionate about what you do. I, I love that you're you know that it's you get to use your talents and your skills that Hashem gave you to build something now from scratch. And I'm sure that once you finish that first violin, it's gonna be hard for you to let it go. <laughs> I'm not letting it go. It's not letting go. Oh, it's and, for I, you. Okay. and I wanted to let you know that six months ago, when I started building, is when I also started taking classical violin lessons from a guy from the symphony. I said, you know what, if I'm going to, I mean, I, I could play a little bit before that, right? but um, now if I'm going to really be able to showcase my instruments, I need to really be able to play them. And I thought it was now it's full circle, so now I've been taking classical violin lessons, um, really focusing on classical music, but um, I am getting involved in, in uh, learning some Breastlip tunes too, so it's another part that's a full circle. Excellent, excellent. So let me ask you just uh, another question or two before we, we finish this podcast. It's been so great so far. Let's say you have I, – I, this sounds like an, um, an actually a great parnasa for, uh, for, for an entrepreneur to get into if you have a certain, uh, I guess, skill set or patience or, or talent. What would you suggest to somebody that, hey, that wants to get into building violins or building string, string instruments, instruments today? What's the best way to get started in that? I would say, you know, the chances of them getting into an opportunity like I did are pretty rare. Mm -hmm. So I would say if you really want to solidify getting into this business, I would enroll in three years of either the violin making school in Boston or the one in Chicago or the one in Salt Lake City. Uh, so so this, this, this is not something you can really learn on your own, you're saying, or just – Not really. Like I said, I, I'm really um, – no, you had the, that one-on-one. -on -one. miracle story. I'm the miracle story, yeah. Uh -huh. To be able to get into – for a shop to accept you. And shops are – they're so inundated with people who are who are coming out of these violin-making schools that are looking for work, sure. you know. So they're usually like so full up. You know, you call a shop. Hey, are you looking for anybody? No, we're good, you know. Right. Um, 
But if you really want to get yourself an opportunity to be able to, to for them to accept you, then I would say you know take the time out and train uh, formally. So you're saying that there's more student, there's more people coming into the business than there's a market for. Is that? Uh... Well, it depends on where you live. I just know where I live. There's only a handful of shops, and each one is pretty full as far as their employees, you know. And so, um, I remember when I was looking, and I, this is after I'd been trained, and I was looking for um, work. Most of the shops were like, "Yeah, we're full right now, but leave us your information. We'll keep keep you in mind," you know. Right. But if you're not trained, then it's going to be really hard for you to to get into a shop and have them start you from scratch training you. Now, you, it is true that when you do graduate from one of these schools, you do have to learn and, and relearn certain technique because um, when you're working in a shop, it's, it's – you know, when you – put it this way. If you're a surgeon and you – you know, memorize all the books that you need to to become a surgeon. Once you get into surgery and start practical application, you got to kind of tweak things a little bit. You know, you're using all your sure. book smarts, but there's certain applications that you have to change that maybe they didn't explain this to you in the book. You right. know, right? So sure. same thing when you come out of the violin making school and you you learn a certain technique or something and like maybe how to cut a bridge, or how to set up an instrument, how to do a sound post. Once you get into practical application you're going to have to tweak things a little bit. So that was kind of an advantage that I really got hands-on training from day one. You know, and I've, and I've had comments from some from my bosses and peers that, you know, people coming out of the schools were not as comfortable and advanced as I had learned to be from just being hands-on, you know. Right. So if you can find, if you have the desire if you have a great eye, it's really about being having a great eye because you're talking about measurements about a millimeter that can make all the difference in the world. So, wow, wow. You know, I mean, I you, have to have a good, you have to have a good eye and you have to have a good ear also, I guess. You have to have a great ear, a great eye, and you have to have some woodshop skills, you know. You have to be comfortable with knives, chisels, planes, and um, – you know, if you look at my hands, you'll see some battle scars. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, uh, but if it's really about the passion. I think in anything, if you really love something, you really want to do something, you say, you know what, no matter what obstacle, I'm going for it. You got, you, how can you not be successful? Especially when you say, you know, when you're relying on Hashem to guide you this way and you say, Hashem, this is really what I want to do. If it's right for me, let me be able to do this, you know? Right, right. With Hashem's, with Hashem's will, and your desire, I think that that's the best way. So if you want to do something like this, call some of the local shops. See if you can apprentice. See if you can go in there and clean instruments or whatever to get yourself in the door. You know, And maybe you'll be lucky and, and they'll train you. But if not, enroll in one of these schools. You, it's fantastic. You know, you'll come out of there learning how to, how to make instruments. And um, if you have the resources, maybe you can – you know, start your own business. A lot of people do it. Beautiful, so. beautiful. Well, this has been absolutely amazing, ZZ. I, I appreciate you taking the time and I, I love the fact that I get to hear your story personally and be able to share it with my listeners. I'm looking forward to, you know, you know the days when uh, you'll be creating uh, your own violins every month and, uh, you know, and having uh, continued success in what you're doing. And so thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your story with our, our listeners and I look forward to uh, hearing many great things to come. Thank you so much. As my brother Laser tells me, that this all is God's plan so that I can work on the instruments of Levim in the base of Mikdash 
hopefully one day soon. Um, so this is, uh, and um, and I just want to tell you, if, if you don't mind, if people sure. want to see more of my work or get in touch with me, they can go onto my website, which is www.ludwick's house of violin. That's L U D W I C K S H O U S E O F V I O L I N dot com. And please give me a call. I'd love to talk to anyone and uh, be glad to help anyone any, any way I can. And uh, come visit me when you're in Silver Spring. I'd love to see you. And, and you should also have so much bracha and hatzlacha with, with you reaching out to these different, um, as you call, froom entrepreneurs. And uh, it should be a success with, for you and, as well. And, amen, uh, amen. Thank you so much. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank yourself. you, Nachum, one more thing before we go. Sure. Um, years ago, the Jewish community used to be so involved in, uh, in the string world. We're talking about violinists, violists, cellists. And throughout the years, I don't know what the reason is. It seems like it's not been as popular. The school programs have not offered type of musical education. And it just seems like the... Asian community has really dominated when it hmm. comes to the string, the string world, the string community. Hmm. And one thing that someone had told me that I'm in such a wonderful opportunity to be able to maybe speak to the Jewish community and say, hey, let's bring back, let's bring back those days of glory where the Jewish community can can be involved uh, in the string world again and be some of the top violinists. I mean, look, look at who we have. We have Yitzhak Perlman, right, you know, Yehudi Menuhin, you got, um, I, mean, I can't even think, there's so many big, famous violinists, and it used to be such a part, I mean, Kletzmer music used to be really popular, sure. and I'm not talking only from here, but, you know, from Europe as well, we had such a rich tradition of a violin, in fact, that's one of the things that really um, I gravitated towards, is, is that what is really you know, soul music for us, you know, something about hearing a, a Hamish violin playing, it just goes to the neshama. And I think that would be fantastic for for anyone listening to 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 say, you know what, maybe he's onto something. Let's, you know, maybe I should enroll my kids in in violin lessons or maybe let's let's bring back that, you know, the time of of, you know, rich violin tradition that we're really famous for tradition exactly and (laughs) and if you look at my logo my tagline on my logo says where tradition never goes out of style Uh, that's my tagline you can see it on my logo and that means so much you know not only am i am i building the instruments the same way that it's been done for hundreds of years but for me religion my tradition never goes out of style you know some people they say oh that's you know that's old stuff you know um, you know, it wasn't it, the laws of kashrut is because there wasn't any refrigeration back then. You know, whatever their excuses are. Hey, right. for me, it's all fresh. Every day is fresh. You know, every day gets even better. So tradition never goes out of style. Let's bring that tradition back, like you said. Let's 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 involve the Jewish community again, and and be the forefront of the string world. It would be it would be unbelievable to to have a resurgence like that. Beautiful, beautiful. Let's hope it happens. Very good. You guys oh, heard thanks. it from Zizi Ludwig. And if you want your first lesson, call Zizi. <laughs> I'll refer you to my teacher. Yeah. There you go. Okay. Thank, thank you again. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Take good care. Call it. 
Thank you for listening to the From Entrepreneur Podcast with Nahum Kligman. We hope you learned something valuable and will share this with your friends. For show notes, archives of previous episodes, and more information to help you start and grow your business, please visit our website, www.fromentrepreneur.com. Listen, learn, be Masliak.